I'm Deirdre Latour, and this is Flack You, a podcast I started to take the flack back and tell the behind-the-scenes story about the world of reputation and communications in a divided and digital first world. On this episode of Flack You, Eat, Pray, PR, a discussion on how to be ambitious, advance your career, have a life, and keep your sanity. My guests today are Carmen Rita Wong and Deb Elam. Carmen is a force of nature, a producer, investor, and advisor to women-owned businesses, fiction and nonfiction author, and the vice chair of the National Board of the Planned Parenthood Federation at this critical time in the organization's history. Deb Elam is the president and CEO of Corporate Playbook, a consulting firm that develops leaders and coaches organizations to elevate diversity. I met Deb at GE, where she had a 30-year career in HR and was the chief diversity officer and the head of the GE Foundation. Deb and Carmen, thank you for being on Flack U. Uh, I've known both of you for over a decade, and you're both one of a kind and incredible women. So it's a huge treat and honor for me to have both of you together for this uh, talk. So thanks for being here. Excited to be here. Great to be here. So I want to do this show in, in the first season of Flack U because one of the things I realized at the end of my 14-year run at GE is what people, when you're in a leadership position in a company, what people really want is honesty and transparency about life and quote-unquote balance. We'll talk about whether or not there is any, but balance and ambition and work and like how do you actually do things? And that's, I feel, a need. And especially in today's very disconnected, hyper-partisan, divided, digital first world, I feel like people want to be connected more than ever. And they also want honesty because I don't know about you guys, but everybody's Facebook page looks like they're, you know, it's a romantic comedy, <laughs> including mine. It's like, if you would think I'm always like in a dress or something on my, you know, in my life, which is completely not true. So I think this is, people just want to hear some real talk. So I picked the, the right people for that. And I want to hit on a bunch of topics, a little bit rapid fire. And this is the real, real people. So where you're going to hear things that people won't tell you and at work or in life or things like that. So before we do that, let's just, I want people to understand a little bit about you guys. So Deb, let's start with you. So tell me about the journey to Deb. Like, how did you become, I'm doing air quotes, <laughs> Deb Elam? Like, how did that happen? Well, you know, I um, I was recruited uh, as an intern. So I started, I worked for GE for 30 years, and I literally started as an intern and joined a training program right after finishing grad school and did successively larger roles, moving all across the country. And then at the end of the 30 years, I had two pretty big jobs. I was president and CEO of the GE Foundation, as well as the the chief diversity officer for the company. So, you know, I think it took hard work. It took flexibility. It took willingness to lean into hard jobs, to move around, put myself in things that weren't necessarily comfortable or easy. But I think you can do it. I don't think there's anything impossible or improbable about my life. I was blessed. I prayed a lot. I was lucky in some cases. But, you know, I, I think it's very doable. How did you get the confidence, you know, the sort of because I think you have a great understanding of your worth, you know? Yeah. You know, that's a great question. I guess growing up, I went to a girl's school and I'm a big proponent of single sex education for girls. Ursuline Academy, the oldest uh, continuously operating girls school in this country in New Orleans, Louisiana. And as a woman, a young woman, it was always sort of 
you know, ingrained upon us that you can do anything, you can be anything. And so I always took that with me. I never looked at being a woman as a hindrance. I never looked at being African-American as a, as a hindrance. I always looked at it, quite frankly, as a plus because it said, I see the world differently. And if I can see the world differently, I can bring something different to the conversation. So I don't think I've ever been truly afraid. Not that there aren't moments of fear if you've got to go present something or meet someone. There's always little moments of fear. But I've always felt like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm pretty badass. And I'm going to be that all the way to the end of the career. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So, Carmen, one of the things that always struck me about you is that you just have great conviction and a and, and wealth of ideas. I mean, I don't know, like, when the brain, your brain stops or whatever. So how did you tell, tell us a little bit about... I could use a break once in a while. Yeah. It should probably slow down. <laughs> if it could, that would be great. Here's, I mean, the, the the most important thing to really know about me is that, you know, I'm the daughter of immigrants, uh, one undocumented. First daughter of five, multiracial, multiethnic. But here's the thing. My mother really bought into, she was a tiger mom, and she really bought into the American idea of meritocracy. So she raised me as a privileged white man. So this is what you need. This is where the confidence comes from, that I am no different, that no one has a monopoly on all these things. So that was really vital to me coming through, as you know, so many different challenges in my life to do almost everything I've ever set out to do since I was a kid. And it's like been done already, which is crazy, but I'm, I'm it's amazing. And I think my conviction comes from, you know, I've got a long line of incredibly strong women who really sacrificed everything to get me to this point. I never left that. I never forgot that. And I always saw it as I just had to represent for them. Now, that's a burden, too. It's a huge burden to have to represent all the time. A burden that a lot of other people don't have to have, right? Meaning but stand up for the people that came Meaning you have you, to represent because the trouble is... American experience. Yeah. Think, right? Well, and the trouble is, you know, I was raised Latina, Black, Asian, and Italian. So the trouble is, is that I end up having to represent from multiple identities and if that's the second you do anything wrong, all of a sudden you're an example. Because coming up, I was always the only one, right? You're the only woman, the only woman of color in your space, especially because I was in finance journalism, right? So you're the only one. So if something goes wrong, so it's a tremendous amount of pressure. So you plow, plow, plow ahead. And I was trained for that. But now I'm at a point in my life where you can sit back a bit and then really figure out what I want to do and do the things that I want to do, which... That voice wasn't there because it was all about achievement. That's awesome. We're going to talk more about that uh, as we go along here. So let's let's dive into topics here. I think some of these themes are going to come out again. But so let's, so, you know, let's start with the future is female, question mark, question mark, question mark. Yeah, that's how I'm thinking about it. Because I, I, I have to tell you, I've been a little bummed out lately on this topic because I just think, you know, it's the same thing since time began. You know, Indra Nui retiring from Pepsi, I thought was a bummer. And then, of course, she's replaced uh, by a man. They're almost never replaced by women. The numbers, I mean, Deb ran diversity at a massive company. The numbers are dismal. The numbers of women of color are, are I think, even more dismal. Right, Deb? I yes, mean, absolutely. So, I mean, so how do you guys, I mean, Deb, what do you, how do you think we make this better? Like, what do you think's going on? And why are we not going in the right direction? Or maybe you disagree with me. I don't know. Yeah, no, no, no. Look, I think, you know, there certainly could be more of uh, more diversity at the table, at the senior table in almost every organization that I've been a part of or I've seen. So absolutely, you're you're spot on. I don't look at it as a game of, though, well, Indra retired, so then a woman's got to take that spot. I, I just sort of look at it as, 
what's going on collectively? I mean, I just went through an Emily's List training just for myself. Not that I'm necessarily going to run for anything, but in my coaching practice, I wanted to learn what are some of the things they're doing. I'm very encouraged by what I saw there in terms of women who are stepping up to the plate. There are more women who have signed up to run for political office than ever before in the history of this country. That gives me hope. That makes me feel good. Not everybody will want to do that, but I think as women take on more leadership roles, it may not be necessarily in the Fortune 500, but it could be in a school system. It could be in a medical practice. But we've got to we've got to find our voices in a lot of different venues. And I think I see that happening. I mean, listen, this is what we're witnessing is, is you know, to use this, which has become a cliche with the with the youths is the dismantling of the patriarchy. It is happening. And I think if you uh, get involved in nonprofit groups and get involved in, in these efforts, so I'm the vice chair of the Planned Parenthood board. And what I see is this is reflects what you're seeing, Deb, at, at Emily's List is incredible, incredible vitality and movement in terms of women pushing ahead. But if you look and you see how millennials are doing things and you look and you see how their world is so different. I'm super, super hopeful. I mean, my daughter's 11 and she's growing up in a world where she she literally does not see all these things that we see. And it's going to take years to get there. But I feel like the pressure is tremendously on. So, for example, in media, we see and I've been involved with every network that has had a Me Too story. Um, I'll just <laughs> I'll say I've been there seeing it come apart. I've connected with a lot of producers, female producers, who had drank the Kool-Aid and who initially, when these stories came out, really came after the women. And I had discussions, really deep, hard discussions with them. And it took a little while. And they realized, oh, my God, like, I believed that that was okay. Now, that's part of the reason why they got ahead it's not that they did those things, but it's that they endorsed it and they felt, you know, women shouldn't be angry on TV and women should be doing this. And so we're seeing this get dismantled. And that's the power of social media, frankly, that is really pushing on all sides, whether corporate or such. The fact that we're having a discussion that Indra was not replaced by a female is yeah, it's a good huge. Thing. It's yeah. a good thing. Yeah. But it needs to get moving. Isn't it at its core the truth, though, that and, and I don't mean to say this in a way this is going to sound negative, but that until we are at a place where women are worth the same, I just think in general, in a lot of it is subconscious, right? But that women are worth less. I mean, I'm working on with the Times Up Legal Defense Fund, helping a woman um, in in on the West Coast. I'll say because it's not public yet. Who is a security guard and has gone through the most horrible sexual harassment in the workplace. And I just think in that environment that she's in, she is just worthless. You know, not we don't. That's not true. But that's, you know, so until that changes, don't you think that's. Yeah, no, no, I I think you're right. I think we what we have to do as women is find allies within each other. We have to find allies across racial lines as women, across ethnic lines. Um, We've got to be strong. And as Carmen said, you know, the Me Too thing has happened. I'm glad it's come to the forefront. You know, I want to give voice, interestingly, to the women who actually did not have a Me Too experience. I did not have a Me Too experience in a 30-year career. And it's funny because I started feeling like, well, what the hell's wrong with me? You know? (laughs) No, girl, they were just just scared of you. That's what it was. They're scared. 
scared of you. But, but you start to you start to question, like, well, was there something? And and I I can't no. say there was, but I have done a few speaking engagements recently where I felt the need to give voice to those women. Like, there's nothing wrong with you for whatever reason. Be glad that it didn't happen to you, but also be supportive of the women it happened to, and help them find their voice and get resolution. Yeah, and the and the working with the women that this happened to. I mean, it all comes down to all women. To your point. Um, Deirdre, is that all women are not seen as full human beings. Okay. And until we're seen as full human beings right. with full value right. and full right. worth, yeah. right. we are not going to get there. Because the bottom line at the end of the day, and when, when I talk about you know finance and household finances, all this stuff with people, and I say, you know, listen, this is the one, these are one issue sometimes. It, when gender is removed, what it means is, and I'm not talking about all this colorblind, genderblind business, because that's a load of BS. But what it is, is, is if you're equal, and you're an equal playing ground, you can be your gender and it's not a hindrance. It doesn't right. mean anything less. Correct. Right. Right. You can be your race. You can Correct. be your identification. Correct. It does not mean anything less. So we need to get to that point. And when you start taking off all of those veils of, well, she makes, well, that's okay. She's got, you know, and he doesn't have, and he's got a supportive family. And she's like, you remember those old things? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh but yeah. he gets paid oh, yeah. more because he has a family and she does. Oh, my God. Like, yeah. it's ridiculous. Oh, yeah. yeah. You're doing the same work. Look, I can remember having a conversation years ago. I was working in XYZ business unit and we were acquiring a lot of companies. And we acquired a company. And um, so there was a woman and I who had similar jobs. Our jobs were almost identical for different profit and loss centers. And this woman was much older than me at the time, much older. And I learned that her compensation was much higher than mine. And I was furious because everybody sort of said, oh, she's not really good. She's just a hangover. We're going to probably get rid of her. Oh, Deb, you're great. You're wonderful. And I'm like, yeah, but money is money. Okay. Real money yeah. is real money. So just telling me I'm great doesn't do Can't it. Can't take those compliments to the bank. Exactly. Can't. That's exactly right. So I remember <laughs> going to my boss and I said, I said, look, I said, um, I trust you. I said, I want you to look into my compensation vis-a-vis this other person. I said, now, if you come back to me and look at me in my eye and tell me everything is fine, I will believe you because I trust you that everything is fine. If it is not fine, I'm going to trust that you will take care of it. Mm. And did they? Yes, they did. (laughs) Yes, they did. I love it. Well, that's a good segue, actually. Let's segue into money. That's a great segue because so, Carmen, money, you know, you're a financial, personal finance expert, right? Money is freedom. And by that, I don't mean you have to be a multimillionaire. You have to have a lot of money. I don't mean wealth and kind of the gross wealth we're seeing and kind of, you know, the way people display it in the world. I just mean that it allows you to make decisions, right, that you wouldn't otherwise be able to make. Like if you're at a job and you feel like you're eth- ethically it's not the right job for you, for example, you can leave because you have enough in the bank, right? So, so how F- do you make fund. money? Like, how do you, like, how do you, how do you, like, how do you... You mean the F.U. fund, dude? Yes, yes. I was thinking that, and I you said it, I always tell people, Carmen. I always tell people you go to the you F.U. fund. It. You need it. I was thinking it, it and you Which articulated it. Which is hard it. to do. So how do you make money? Listen, one of the biggest things, um, and it's funny because now... Is it standing you, up for yourself like Deb did? Par- you know, partially, the- and partially goes back to your idea of worth, right? So I came through journalism, right? So I was in print and money and fortune, which, by the way, could be not get ahead barely it took me years getting graduate degree coming back because you know there were no women of color on the editorial side so anyway ended up with it with the tv show as as you know disclaimer it's how i know deidre and then when the show was canceled during the crash right 
everyone was like, oh, my God, like, what's going to happen? But Now, the secret, of course, is, is that when you go on as a guest on CBS Morning Show or Today Show, like, you don't get paid, right? Or so you get paid peanuts. You, yeah. But you don't yeah, really right, now yeah. anymore. Yeah. So how do you monetize this sort of thing? What people didn't know is, is that when I left CNBC, I doubled my income in a year by working for myself. But I had offers to go back full time to television. And a certain network had given me an offer. It was June. And the other part of this puzzle is a typical female puzzle. I Going through a divorce, I was, became a single mom suddenly. And here I had this insane career where I'd never, ever slept. And they said, oh, here's the offer. And it's June. And I said, guys, they wouldn't let me have in the contract that they couldn't send me anywhere, like to China or something. Because I had this one male top executive who was all like, well, with your name and your background, you're global. And I was like, actually, I'm American as apple pie. And I'd like to stay put. So they wouldn't let me change that. So I can't be I can't be being sent to China because I'm a Wong, even though I have I've never been there before with a small child. So I said, well, there's one sticking point, And here's a second sticking point. It's June. I've already made this much money. So what can you do about that? You know, nothing, nothing, of course. And they were shocked. And here's how I did it. First of all, I had a niche, right? So understand what your niche is. Get to know that niche. Get to know the business of how the niche works. Now, I had an advantage because I knew how print worked. I knew how at that time. So I had columns, I had advice columns, and I utilized my platform to build a consulting and speaking business. And that's what I did. But let me tell you, it was it was contacts, it was connects, it was knowing what I was really good at, what my niche was, and frankly, pricing myself. Because one of the biggest mistakes I saw with fellow journalists who were friends of mine who I adore, and I would be screaming at them. They're like, oh, I took this assignment. Well, I just, and I'm like, how much you get? You know, I'm the only person who talks about money in the family. How much you get? And they'd be like, well, I'm going to do this one for free. Oh, my God. Free work begets oh free Oh, my work. God. Yes. And I would yes. lose my mind on them. they say, but if I don't do it, then they won't. I would lose jobs rather than not get what I deemed I was worth. And a lot of that had to do with very practical things like childcare, like paying mortgages, like all that sort of thing. But also, what is my expertise and what is my time and who am I? I priced myself like a man. Mm -hmm. If you're not going to do that for me, then I don't want to. It's a waste of my time. Right. So I would wait it out. And it was actually I would end up with less on my plate and higher but paying more, jobs yeah, more and of an making ROI, more money. More of an ROI. No yeah. busy work. No yeah. free work. Yeah. Now, I know things have changed even more now. It's very difficult to navigate, but you always got to stay on your toes about it. But you, you always got to find a way to get paid. But, Deb, don't you think women think about money. I mean, you were in HR for so long. Yes. So you had you dealt with salaries with yes, people and everything. Absolutely. But don't did you find women think about money differently than men do and negotiate differently than men, men do? Men think about money all the time. All the time. <laughs> men always came in to talk about their money, especially at bonus season or that sort of thing. Men always came in. I, I mean, always. So, yes, the answer to your question is unequivocally yes. And Carmen's exactly right. As women, we don't typically negotiate as well as we should. We don't understand our worth and our value. And men 
overvalue themselves, quite frankly. They're often they're not as good as they think they are, but they will push and push and push. And the stereotypes have played into, to your point, the, oh, he has a family, all that. I don't I don't I didn't see that toward the latter part of my career. I think earlier on that was very prevalent. But no, absolutely. Men think about money, bottom line, all the time. And what about cultural, like black and Hispanic? And do they is is there a thought process around money, black and Hispanic women that's different than White women, do you think? Or is that sort of, no, it's just a more of a gender thing? You know, so, um, yes. So I'm involved in both communities. I have to say that it can be tied to that. I think there are some differences. So, for example, whether it's being a very giving person, and this is kind of a psychological thing. So within Black and Latino cultures, it's very, very important to be part of a community. So even though you're taking care of yourself, you're taking care of your parents, your cousins, your aunts. And a lot of times what I've seen is the women who succeed end up are usually the only ones in their immediate family to succeed. And they're supporting more people than other families are. So that's a tradition. And it's a very big pressure. It's a huge pressure. So you're not just talking kids, you're talking multiple generations, then there's giving to church and community. And that's another big difference. That can add like 30% to people's expenses or more. So that is a factor that needs to be considered. Now, in terms of coming up and asking for what you're worth, I've seen both sides of the coin. I've seen the most ballsy women on the planet, right, who happen to be of color. And then I've also seen the women who are like, no, I'll just do this. And, you know, it, it that depends on what I've seen. But I think the cultural pr- pressures are much so, much more about taking care of more than you. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree wholeheartedly. So let's talk about balance. Both of you are mothers. I'm a mother. I have three boys under the age of 10. One of them is a special needs child. He's autistic. And Deb, you have two daughters. Two daughters, 20 and 22. And Carmen, you have one daughter. She's 11. 11. And all of your daughters are stunning. All of them. Like you have the most beautiful (laughs) daughters and smart first, I'm sure, but uh, beautiful. So is is there such a thing as balance, really? Or is this a myth? Or, you know, I mean, how 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 do you do it? Yeah, you know, I I have never thought about work life balance. I've always thought that was just BS. I've believed in and subscribed to work life integration, work life flexibility, the ability to, um, you know, uh, go to a uh, lacrosse game and then step aside if I have to do a call real quick or if I have to do an email or if I have to leave early, go do something and do something else later. Because, you know, in the age of technology, we work all the time. So it's not like work stops at a certain time and you can't log on. I just think, you know, it is not it's that balance. Let me tell you the thing with the balance question. When I think of balance, I visualize the scales of justice, right? And the scales of justice are very even. But if my child called me right now in the middle of what we're doing this podcast and said, Mommy, I've fallen, I've broken my arm. Guess what? Her thing just went up and this just went down. So this is no longer in balance and vice versa. If you've got a real project you're crunching on, you know, you may say, look, I've got to really be at work until whatever time for the next three days. This is going to take a part. So I don't think it's ever truly in balance. I think you just got to be able to integrate and be flexible and be present and fully present in the times that you need to be present. I I think that's right. I I just, you know, but young people today, what I was finding is, you know, we'd had a a GE, we had a leadership center called Cronville, and I would go and speak to the classes. And at the end of class, 
every class, there would be two women, and there were a ton of cl- uh, questions in the class, right? That was part of the teaching. At the end, I would be putting myself in my bag, and two women would come up to me, inevitably young women, somewhere around 30, and say, I don't think I can do it. I'm going to have to quit. I'm either pregnant or I'm going to have a kid or whatever, and you seem to be able to do it. I don't think I'm going to be able to do it. And a lot of anxiety around it. So I do think the younger generation doesn't want to work the way we worked. It's very different. It's very different. So the the idea of balance, I find I'm going to use the P word, is a privilege, right? So I wasn't raised with any idea that that was like, you just do the damn job and you take care of your kid. You just do it. That's it. One of the things I find incredibly important for me um, was boundaries. You got to be mature enough to have boundaries. That means to feel secure enough in your position or in your person to say. So, for example, when your husband Deirdre was my boss mm-hmm. on my show <laughs> on CNBC, shout out to Rich, who was fabulous, by the way. One of the things I did was I was like, I will not answer texts or emails between 6 p.m. and 8 p.m. That's when I make my daughter her dinner and I put her to bed and then I'm back on until God knows when. But these boundaries were so incredibly important because that was a way of keeping the the B word, the balance word. But I think when it comes to younger women, what I'm hearing today, too, and I work with a lot of them is here's the thing. They're living in a different economic reality than we were when we were we were in our 20s. Okay, so they are looking at not only no maternity leave, which is disgusting, no benefits, self healthcare that you have to buy on your own, which is ridiculous. So there's all these other expenses that they have, plus their student loans, plus wages that have stayed the same since we were in our 20s, that they they have a very different economic reality. So I would be terrified as well, <laughs> not to say you can't do it, but man, do their lives have to adjust. One of the things that I'm seeing and I do see is more living closer to families again. So there's not a lot of mobility, but they're living closer to families. They're living with their with support their parents, systems. support systems, mm-hmm. cousins. There's a lot more of that because there simply has to be. So I don't think so much it's that they don't want to work as hard. I think it's a terror of the fact they can work just as hard and still feel like they're not getting anywhere. Yeah, that they're not able to. It's running to stand still. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I do think, though, the boundary thing is a huge yeah. thing. I mean, I used to say at, you know, at GE I, that I didn't work on the weekends. Now, I ran communications. So clearly there are, <laughs> ur- there are urgent situations all the time and there were weekend projects all the time. So, of course, I did when I had to. But if there were none of those things on the weekends, I didn't work because that was when I, I find there's a lot of martyrdom. Where people, yeah. where people yeah. say, I and mean, women do this. Yes, but mm. I mean, I had a boss who, you know, the company wouldn't survive, you know, if he wasn't working all weekend. And boy, did he let you know it. <laughs> like, <laughs> it is a big company; yeah. it yeah. will survive just fine, yeah. right? And so people were shocked when I would tell them that. But I think that you have to be an example for young people too, right? On Absolutely. How to do it. Well, I think the other thing is for me having control. So trying to create spaces where I had a level of control. So for example, at one period of time, I was traveling a lot, just traveling a lot. My daughters were 12, 13, 14. So in the year that my daughter was 13, she went to a school where there are a number of Jewish kids, girls. And so there were bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs almost every weekend. Well, I went and bought boy and girl gifts. I stockpiled them in my closet. So when I got home, I just looked at the invitation. Okay, it's a boy. Okay, let's pull the blue box down. (laughs) I love it. Let's put the card. I mean, so I found ways to try to create 
as much control in the scenario as I could. When the day was there, when they were much younger to sign up for, you know, whatever the moms are going to sign up for, I always signed up for paper goods for all the holidays. So I'd go to Party City, I'd get the giant bag of the cups, the plates, the forks, everything for XYZ holiday. It sat in a bag in my closet until it was time to bring it, you know. So I just, again, whatever you can do, I think for me and what I've seen with women is when they feel out of control, it just gets really tough. So I would always try to find tips, even into this day, my daughters and I have this rule. If it's not on the calendar, it doesn't exist. So we have shared calendars. We all have iPhones. And if one of them's going to a doctor's appointment and now there's a follow-up appointment, she puts it on our shared calendar because I, I'm like, I'm not even going to try to figure out when the next thing is scheduled. So if it's not on the calendar, um, it doesn't exist. Yeah, that's, that's, a, good that's a great tip. I think those like life hacks. Yeah are really awesome, right? That's I love the shopping systems. tip. I'm totally going to yeah. do that. You got to have systems in place. Yes, yes so exactly. Important. And, Absolutely. And what about guilt, Carmen? Like did you did yeah. you um yeah. have do you have yes. guilt? Have oh, I had. I had. It's all gone. No, I'm kidding. It's still there. <laughs> Shoot, I was raised Catholic. Yeah, it's woven into the fabric. However, it's quite quiet, but here's what happened. I I really felt guilty about being a single mom and not seeing my daughter as much. And, you know, I worked ridiculous amount of time and hours and traveled a lot. And I, what I did was is, and this is something we all need to do, is reach out to other women and talk to them about their situation. So I had some friends who were raised by single moms who worked. And I said, can you just talk to me? I know you're great and I know you're normal. Can you just talk to me? What was your process when you were this age? Like, what were you thinking? How did you think about your mom? Did you think badly about her? Did you say, oh, I wish she was home? Did you hate her later? Like, was there this whole... And it was great discussions about this sort of thing. So I think one of the things, two things, guilt is, is and this is my therapist said this, this is great. It's really a selfish, very selfish emotion. So if you're doing something out of guilt, it's not the right reason to do something. And two, resentment. To be very careful of resentment being a sign that things are not right and that you need to fix things. Mm-hmm. So those two feelings are a sign that you need to fix things. Guilt to me, when I feel the guilt, it's about boundaries and asking myself, why do I really need to do this? Or why do I really feel like I need to do something? Where's that coming from? And then the resentments is, okay, what am I not liking about this situation? What can I do about it? Yeah. So it's really understanding the triggers of like where it's coming from and why. And asking yourself, why? Why do you feel guilty? I mean, a lot of my guilt just came. I was conditioned. It's just the way I was raised. The martyrdom. I please. My mother was a martyr like you wouldn't believe. You know, so, <laughs> so it's like that. What have you learned? What systems have you learned and attitudes have you learned? And what can you do if you don't like it to break out of it? And a lot of it is just asking yourself questions when this stuff comes up. Yeah. And also challenging assumptions. Yes. Like for me, I, I've had a ton of guilt around having an autistic child and yet being ambitious, like wanting to work and wanting to that that fulfills me as a person. And you go through this whole process of, well, should I stay home? Like, should I be at home and like doing exercises with him and doing and then when you start challenging those assumptions but he's in school all day so you're not going to be helping him when he's in school and he has a psychologist a physical therapist he's got you know speech therapist he's got I mean he's got so much help that is way more qualified than you. So how are you going to do better than that? When you start challenging mm-hmm. yeah. the emotional side, I mean, maybe I'm rationalizing. I don't know. No, you guys. No. I, you know, I think I think guilt is a very useless emotion. 
I really do. I've always thought that. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm human, so I'm not 100%, but I'm pretty damn close. I just try to make the best decision with the information that I have at the time. And, you know, if you look back and say, well, would I have made a different decision with the information I had at the time? Probably not. So the thing that I have tried to do with my daughters who are a little older than, than your kids is engage them in what I'm doing. So I try to ex- I've always tried to explain to them, look, I may not be here this week or these couple of days, but this will afford us the opportunity to do something really cool. Or this enables mommy to take you here. So I've always tried to make sure it was clear to them, I'm doing this, it's fulfilling. And you're not a mystery. And I'm not a mystery. Right. And and I would have them travel with me in the summer. You know, whenever I could have them travel when they were old enough, you know, if I had to go to meetings to, let's say, be in a hotel, and maybe we would stay somewhere an extra day. So I always tried to expose them, as particularly as women, to what I was doing as a female leader um, and, and others, other colleagues um, in GE as well. So, it, you know, I, I think it's, it's, it's imperfect, but, you know, we all, we all do the best we can. And the, don't forget, I'm going to talk to you about this guilt thing, because don't forget, you're not rationalizing. This is the burden that we've had coming mm-hmm. up through a system that doesn't think we're worthy and that men are not able to share the burden. So happy mommy, happy home. If happy mommy means work and being ambitious, then there you go. Because you have a big heart and you love your kid. You know, so it's like I just feel like we have absorbed so much totally of agree. that. Totally That agree. we need to just get rid of it. To your point about question that assumption. And Rich would never say, and he would be fine if he was sitting here, and they say he would never say that. Rich would never say, and he's an amazing, amazing father. He would never say, "Oh, maybe I shouldn't go to work <laughs> because he got." He just would never say it. It wouldn't even like when yeah. I say it to him. He lo- he says he says you're nuts. You know, right, right. Well, you know, and and this may be to your question earlier, Deirdre, where this potentially breaks a bit down racial lines because I can remember talking to white female colleagues around these topics and saying, "Well, my mother, you know, worked in the, stayed in the home or I had to decide if I was going to go to work. I don't know anybody's mom who didn't work when I grew up. It was never a decision. Everybody worked. Really? Um in yeah. the in the black community, everybody yeah. worked. See, so, not the way I grew up. Right. So it was so it, for you it was very much a conscious decision, I think, mm-hmm. or maybe a more conscious decision to say I'm going to work and have a career. For me, it was always we're going to work. It's just a question is it a career? What what is it? Yeah, I know what you mean. It's just something that it's, and then we'll move on to the last topic, but something that Deb said to me once, which she would never remember has influenced my parenting, which is uh, you told me a story once, Deb, about your daughter and driving, and she was really mad at you because she wanted to drive somewhere and you wouldn't let her. I think she was like 16 or something, and um, she was really mad and not talking to you. And I said, oh, doesn't that upset you that she, and and Deb looked at me like I was like (laughs) the craziest person ever. And she, Deb said, you said, she's not my, I'm not her friend, I'm her mother. It doesn't Yeah. me at all, oh, right? And so, so every once That's in a while, it. to yeah. this day, you'll yes. appreciate this, Deb. To this day, when one of my sons is mad at me, and I know I'm doing the right thing with what I think of Deb saying, like, you're not his friend, you're his mother. Like, right. too bad you're bad. You have a responsibility. Oh, my repeats yeah. that back at me. She's like, because I'll be like, now, now, boo, you know it's because I, you know it's because you know I have your best interests at heart, and I got to teach you a lesson. I know, I know, you're not my friend. I was like, remember it, you know, because we're really, really close. Yeah, we listen to each other incredibly. But she has she has learned because we communicate like yes. that. It's like yes. that that's this kind of strictness, she calls it, mommy's strict, is because I care. And it's not about being authoritarian. It's authoritative. Yeah. Well, right? and you do it in a way you, you listen, you talk. Yes. It's sure. a different type of it's thing. It's a different thing. Sure. Yeah. So let's end on really on a fun one, image. <laughs> and 
beauty and all of these good things. There is a, a great story in the New York Times recently about Goop, about Gwyneth Paltrow's mm-hmm. company. And what's interesting, and by the way, um, people hate on me when I say this, Gwyneth Paltrow is actually running a fantastic business. I've bought some of the shirts that she, uh, some of the clothes on Goop is really good. It's really good service and all that. So people really don't like her, but she's running a fantastic business. But what I thought was fascinating is this whole idea of, you know, how to be more perfect than ever, right? And how to be, I mean, we're talking, you got to steam your vagina. We're talking, you got to get plastic <laughs> surgery. I mean, you got, you, you put rocks. There was rocks in your vagina. You, they had a rocks one. in the vagina thing. Crystals. Crystals that no, helps you, you to, and I mean, I don't like, are we that bad? Is Are we that wrong and you know that we you got to do all these crazy things in life you got to be uber skinny you got to be so i mean i don't know how you guys are both stunning so how do you uh think about that i don't (laughs) carmen like listen so i was brought up in latin culture okay so what that means is i was put in beauty pageants from the time i was eight years old which was ridiculous so i just won miss congeniality because that's all i could get (laughs) i didn't take it very i never took it very seriously either but here's the thing is that i've always had a different conflict with this because I was raised in a different culture right it was not seen as giving away power or being lesser than if you got your hair done and your face done and you look good part of it also for us is along racial lines we cannot walk into places not done up we are treated badly so there's definitely a very big racial element that goop for example is like nothing so to for for me to read that piece and to see her business like nothing surprised me i don't see pressure i loved my barbies and it's it's a very considered you know this is the anti-feminist there's all different ways to be feminist and i'm a raging feminist but one of the things i believe in is that this is the reality that i live in that i dress up when i go shopping or else no one will help me except security following me, that I, you know, need to present myself in a certain way if I'm flying first class. It's just the way it is. It's a privilege I don't have. However, on the flip side of that is I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. There's a Sephora around are. the corner. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna go in because it's it's a it's a joy. You know, my my abuela, she was a seamstress for Oscar de la Renta, who is Dominican. And she always was pressed and her hair done. No makeup except red lipstick. Always lipstick, yeah. Just red lipstick. And it was fascinating to me because what I saw wasn't oppression. I saw power. She was powerful. It was like going to church. Like, you just you just look powerful in your femininity. So I didn't grow up with this idea that it was a pressure thing. I think one of the things that does bug me is the whole skinny thing. Because, for example... The comments that I got when I was had my show, I would get comments. You know, I once had a horrible stomach virus, poor Deb, and this is what happened. I lost quite a few pounds, and I came back from the hospital, and they were like, "Could you could you get this all the time? Because you you look so much better now. Can't you lose this weight from the top, top, top? Who may still be there? It's why can't she lose weight? Because I got booty. I don't want to lose my booty. It is a weapon." <laughs> uh, mass destruction. No, <laughs> it has got me places. I love my book. I'm not, but this is who I am. So that idea, that whole skinny ideal, I can't. That I just can't stomach. 
And, you know, it's really funny, Carmen, to hear you say this. So my story is probably the polar opposite in that I was always shaped like a white girl because I'm tall and thin. And I always wanted more curves because, you know, curves are celebrated in the black community. So for me, it was always I love that shaped like a white girl is a negative, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Exactly. You see? There are some some things out there. But so for me, it was always the, oh, my gosh, I don't have enough curves. I don't have enough booty. That was always the, the, the thing with me. But, you know, I agree with you on the dressing and dressing in a way that you look um, of a certain value when you go shopping, when you go out. You really have to do that. And it's white privilege when you don't have to do it. That's how I just look at it. And I tell my kids, look, there's certain things we just need to do and be cognizant about. Not saying it's right, just saying it is. And, I mean, I could tell you all kinds of stories of shopping and, Mm -hmm. you know, people not waiting on you. And then they talk to the person behind you. You're like, wait a minute, did you not see me here? You know, I probably have more money than the next three people in line. You know, (laughs) But, but the perception and the look is very much reality in terms of what people what people think. So. Yeah, and I, I do think for younger women, it is damaging to feel, especially the weight. I think the weight is the number one thing now, right? I think a diversity of style and looks and stuff is, is good. Like, that's evolving in the yeah. right place. Like, I love um, Emma, I, I believe her last name is Gonzalez, right, that's running the... Um, with the shaved head, who's the gun um, control advocate in Florida from Parkland. And she's phenomenal. And yeah. she's like 18 years old. And I just think she's amazing. And she shaved her head, she said, because she wanted to. She, It's hot in Florida. And it was bothering me with to have hair on my Well, look, I left so, TV and I took off all my hair. Yeah, yeah. So because I, think, I want, like, it's just, it's an image. It's freedom to do that. It's freedom. So yeah. I think that's good. I, I think the weight control thing is, mm, is yeah. a problem. There's a, um, a soap product that has a campaign coming out. In fact, it's just launched during Essence Music Fest called Beauty Looks Like. And it's a video of all different kinds of women trying to increase the scope and span of what beauty looks like in terms of women of color, in terms of women with short hair, with long hair, with natural braids, with ring in the nose, ring. I mean, the whole thing, which I think is going to be very powerful. And I know they're looking at doing some workshops with middle school girls across the country to get them to see hashtag what beauty looks like is much more expansive than maybe what we grew up with. That's so needed. So final words, like what advice do you give women when they come to you that you, what would your last final words of advice be on how to live your best life, I guess, is the way to say it. Oh, my goodness. We're still, I'm still figuring out. Um, listen, I, I say this because young women talk to me and it's just to your point about balance and such. It's just really be curious about yourself and all your assumptions so be curious about why do you think certain ways? Why do you think it's bad that you're living at home with your parents? Why do you think it's bad to ask for money? Why do you think examine all of those things? Because one of the greatest gifts I think I was ever given by genetics or upbringing was curiosity. And that's what's kept me questioning absolutely everything. So that makes you agile. It makes you adaptive. It makes you aware. And to consistently figure out how things work. When you know how a system works, you can demand what you want from it. And mine is very cliche-ish. It's do you. Mm -hmm. Just do you. Whatever that is, be confident that whatever interests you, whatever you want to do, if it's run for office, if it's start a business, if it's work inside a company, work in a school system, do you, but be the best at it. Be good at it. Be unquestionably and undeniably the best. Feel confident that you can. So again, my parting words are do you. 
This mm-hmm. was so much fun. Yes, I could do was. this for like I could do this for like a, another two hours. Next time to be so fun, and yes, next time with a cocktail tequila. or whatever. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you for having us. This Thank was great. You.